I don't know how many of you are, are as bad at, as I am at doing dumb stuff uh, over and over again, but sometimes I find myself making the same dumb mistake. And I do want to apologize to everybody among us today, especially our guest, for uh, us not notifying you ahead of time about the doorway that you bumped your head on on the way in today. We're, we're sorry about that. Whether you're young or old, short or tall, uh, somehow, some way, everybody that keeps showing up here on some Sundays just keeps hitting their head on the same doorway. Uh, we all hit it today. Uh, the shortest, youngest among us, the tallest among us, we just keep hitting our head on the same doorway. And you'd think we'd learn our lesson because it, it didn't start today. Uh, it started six weeks ago. It was December 31st, the last Sunday of the year. And then we made a New Year's resolution that day. Those who are new with us, you weren't with us that day, but we all made a resolution that um, when the turn of the year came, nobody would hit their head on the doorway again. But January 7, 14, 21, and 28, you guessed it, short, tall, young, old, visitor, member, people have been here a long time, people came for the first time, everybody hit their head on the same doorway every Sunday, and then here we are today, February the 4th, and we were wanting to start February off on the right foot, but as I've already mentioned, we apologize, and, and we apologize for the pounding headache you have now and how difficult it is to even listen to what I'm saying because we all hit our head on the same doorway. Now, the good news is, since December 31st, we've been recovering throughout the week, but unfortunately, we repeat the same pattern, and we hit our head on the same dumb doorway. Maybe next Sunday we'll do better. Maybe we won't make the same stupid mistake again. Now what kind of fools would we or anybody have to be to hit our head on the same doorway Sunday after Sunday for six weeks in a row? What if I told you that you and I are not too different from people who made a far worse, far more painful, and very easily avoidable mistake. But they didn't make it for six weeks. They repeated the same dumb pattern for over 400 years. The meat of the book of Judges, chapter 3 to 16, depending on how you count the cycles, has either six, as one commentary says, seven, as a lot of commentary says, or 12, as a lot of other commentaries say, has the same cycle, six, seven, 12 times, of doing the same dumb thing over and over again. Little seasons of recovery in between the pain, but a very easily avoidable, not just mistake, not a bad habit, not an uh-oh, not a little problem. Let's call it what the Bible calls it, sin. Far worse than bumping their head on the same doorway, Judges shows us the drastic consequences of repeated rebellion against God. And today's sermon is going to seek to show us the miserable lives of people who continue to turn away from the Lord. 
Judges is basically the sad story that has been unfolding since Genesis 3 of mankind trying to live independently of God. That's why I said many of us are not too dissimilar from these people. And for this sermon, we could look not only at the book of Judges, but the life of any person among us today who's seeking to live apart from Christ. As the title of our series through the book of Judges suggests, mankind has two and only two options, Christ or chaos. That's what Judges is all about. So, from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 16, the same pattern recycles, I'll count it, seven times instead of bowing to the lord worshiping him only and walking in the joy of godward obedience israel instead rinse and repeat turns their back on the lord the pattern summarized in chapter 2 verse 11 to 23 which we saw in a recent sermon but it's basically four things so if you can picture seven times Four things happening in each of the seven cycles, you'll understand the book of Judges. What are the four things that happen? Israelites do evil in the sight of God. They worship other gods. It is a heart problem. Second, God ordains. God causes. He's not just allowing. He's intervening. He's working. He's doing the work. He's causing His people to be conquered and oppressed by foreign enemies. Number three, the people eventually, sometimes soon, sometimes later, cry out to God for mercy, and then God raises up for them in His generosity a deliverer, a mediator, a judge to save and rescue them, and all those judges are ridiculously flawed. So just to say the pattern again, evil, conquered, cry out, delivered. That fourfold pattern happens repeatedly six, seven, twelve times from chapter 3 to chapter 16. Instead of reading that entire portion, which is our sermon text for today, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to a lot of passages in that portion. So I want to get you to get ready to be flipping from page to page and passage to passage. And as you're preparing to do that, let's ask God once again to help us as we consider this vitally important portion of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for every person here, young and old, those who've been with us many, many times, and those perhaps for the first time, pray for every heart, every soul, that You would intrude upon us. That You would do what is a very painful but very gracious work of exposing our sin. Shine the light of Your holiness on our wretchedness. Until we despair of any option, any solution, any remedy, other than fleeing to the risen Christ, and let us find in Him the Mediator, the Deliverer, the Savior, the Judge, the King that our souls have so desperately sought 
in other empty, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Give us Christ. And we pray this for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So the ESV Study Bible says that the name of the book of Judges comes from the title that's given to those 12 leaders. Hence, why some people say there's 12 patterns. Judges, whose temporary leadership was both civil and military, and those leaders of Israel served as judges between the time of Joshua and Saul. That's where you get the 400-year-ish range of time. Let me tell you the names. It's not important that you memorize these names, but you may, as I give you the list of the 12, you may remember what happened under the leadership of some of them. In chapter 3, you get Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. Then you get, in chapters 4 and 5, Deborah. Chapter 6 through 8, Gideon. Chapter 10, Tola and Jair. Also, Jephthah. Then in chapter 12, Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. And finally, in chapters 13 to 16, Samson. That's the story you get in today's sermon text. And today, I've selected half of those, six of the twelve, to demonstrate what I already said to you is this fourfold repeating pattern in every cycle. And instead of showing you cycle one, cycle two, cycle three, and so forth, I want us to run through this way and see sin, the consequences, crying out for mercy, and God's gracious deliverance. First, the bad news. Sin. The oppression that comes from it internally and externally. Not only is that pattern repetitive this way, I didn't know how to do this other than show you, not only is the pattern repetitive this way in all of the cycles, it also moves this way. So that by the time you get to chapters 13 through 16, Israel's so low in their rebellion against God that every time He delivers them, the ceiling is here instead of here. That's what sin does to you. That's what it does to me. The more you tolerate it, excuse it, flirt with it, play with it, entertain it, the more you justify and rationalize and say, well, everybody else does it, or if you only knew how hard it was for me, or if you were going through what I went through, or if you were raised where I was raised, or the family I had, and all the multiplied excuses we give, you know what's happening to your soul? Oh, how I want by God's grace to help you see. It's eroding your capacity to rise from the ashes. And Judges not only shows us that the pattern repeats, It shows us that sin causes us to devolve. So that when we get to next week's sermon text, there's no more rise. And when we get to two weeks from today, the end of the book of Judges, there's no king in Israel. And everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. They've sunk so low in their rebellion against God that there's no judge delivering them. The downward spiral of sin is the title of today's sermon. That's the best description I know how to give. It can be said better, it can be said other ways. That's the best description I know how to give 
of what happens in chapter 13 through 16. It goes this way. The downward spiral of sin. So just to put the whole book of Judges in your view, I'll do it in three points. You get the reason, the root reason, that Israel becomes unfaithful for 400 years. That's chapters 1 and 2. They don't defeat and drive out the enemy. Then chapters 3 to 16, you get what I said is the downward spiral of Israel's unfaithfulness. And then finally, the depth of their depravity their unfaithfulness to the Lord in chapter 17 to 21. The downward spiral of sin reveals to us the sobering truth that the more we tolerate and indulge in sin, the deeper our souls sink into its abyss. Habitual sin recalibrates you from the inside out. You begin to tolerate and excuse things. Anybody who's living in sin today, just think how absurd you thought that very sin was not long ago that's what the book of judges shows us hence the title of the sermon the downward spiral of sin once again the esv study bible in general the book does not describe the judges as leading israel in true repentance and in putting away the foreign gods the new testament may seem to present a more idealized view of gideon samson and others who are found in the book of Hebrews, in the list of the faithful, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, as examples of people who, to quote Hebrews, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Hebrews 11. However, to say that those heroes had some measure of faith is not to say that they were consistent models of faith and virtue. So let's just run through Choosing six select examples, the sin of the people of God in its downward spiral. I've selected Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. So turn with me if you're ready or listen carefully if you prefer. Sin. First, what is sin? Let's get a biblical definition and not make it up as we go. What does God think sin is? Well, God gave us a definition. In places like Romans 3, it is not glorifying God. For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. It is not rendering to God God's just desert. You should glorify Him. You were made for His glory. Isaiah 43 says that crystal clear. To not glorify God is sin. Sin is not honoring God as God. It is not loving Him. The fruit of which exposes our loveless hearts in not obeying Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. The lack of obedience is rooted in a lack of love, a lack of glorifying God. That is sin. According to James 4, it's all the things you never did that you should have done. Knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. James 4.17, to you that is sin. It is also things you did for all the wrong reasons. Romans 14, whatever does not come from faith is sin. If you do the right thing, not for the glory of God, that too is sin. According to 1 Corinthians 10, 
Drinking your orange juice this morning, not for his glory, was sin. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it, 1 Corinthians 10.31, to the glory of God. As counterintuitive as it may sound to you, one of the most loving, gracious, merciful things God could ever do for you, one of the most life-giving, wind-in-your-sails blessings God could ever do for you is to show you your sin. Why? Because you're not going to the physician unless you feel sick. You're not going to seek help unless you feel a need. And as we love to sing around here old hymns, the gospel is good news to sinners deep in debt. The book of Judges shows us our deep debt, our sin. For each of today's sermon points, you're going to do some Bible turning with me. I want us just to pull the plow through the book of Judges four times. We're going to take a look at sin, judgment, cry for mercy, God's gracious deliverance. We'll do so under those six judges I mentioned a moment ago. First, let's stare together at the black cloth laid out in the book of Judges, the sin of God's people. And it's only when we see the backdrop for what it is that the luster and beauty and brilliance and unmerited mercy of Jesus will shine for the diamond that it is. As we look at Israel's sin, I encourage you to listen prayerfully to let the Word of God do the work in your own heart. First, here we go. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. Sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 33. Chapter 8, verse 33. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead, sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Thus the sons of Israel, verse 34, did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. Chapter 10, verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. Finally, chapter 13, verse 1. Now the sons of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. How many times do they have to bang their head on that dumb doorway? I mean, let's be honest. We read 
portions of Scripture like Judges and we think, how stupid could they be? Until, of course, the Word of God does its work in our own soul. Tell me, what does that pattern, again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, what does it show you about the Israelites? What do you know about them just by reading the smattering of verses that I've laid before you? And more personally, what does it show you about yourself? I mean, somebody's obituary is a really sobering thing to read. It tells us before we start the first syllable, their lifetime's over with. The people that lived in the days of the judges, their obituary is written. The, the eulogy can be found. Their lifetime's over with. Those 400 years of Israel's history are complete. There is no going back, no redo, no cleanup. But if I could show you your obituary, if I could take my sermon notes and somehow impose in them your eulogy, your completed lifetime, and we look back on the end of your days, what would it reveal? Does the pattern that Israel lived in during the days of the judges show the pattern that you're going to live in for the rest of your days? Or is there some way, some power, some real opportunity for the downward spiral of sin to be broken? Can we live in freedom from sin's tyranny? Are we relegated to pretending like we got it together on Sunday when you and I know good and well that when night falls this evening, the same ugly pattern rears its head? Can we live in freedom from sin's tyranny? Can fallen creatures experience victory? Did the Holy Spirit mean to put words in verses like freedom, liberty? 2 Corinthians 3.17 Where the Holy Spirit is Lord, there's freedom. Did, did Paul actually mean to write? You were dead in trespasses and sins. You're now alive. Is it possible for something like Hebrews 12 to happen to me? To so see the beauty of Jesus that somehow the encumbering, entangling, ensnaring vine of sin is ripped from me. And I can lay aside all the impediments that slow me down in a full-on marathon race toward the face of my beloved. Can you be conformed to the image of Christ? Can you find victory over that besetting, habitual, recurring sin? I know you want to know. Before we get ahead of ourselves, let's let the plow drag a little deeper. What are the consequences if we don't overcome the sin? Number two is not only this pattern of rank rebellion, but what's the next thing we see in every cycle? Divine judgment. Sin's unavoidable consequences. 
Now, before I just get you to turn with me to a smattering of verses, I know that some of you think you're getting away with it. And maybe you are. Maybe you and God are the only ones that know. And that is actually your problem. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, that he will also reap. What you think you do in secret will soon, says the King of the universe, come to light. Divine judgment. What happens when these people again do evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, go back with me and let's go. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Chapter 3, verse 8. Divine judgment. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rithaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served him eight years. Verse 14. Then the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Chapter 4, verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Chapter 6, verse 1. Sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Chapter 10, verse 7. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. Finally, chapter 13, verse 1. We read the first part earlier. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And it's hard to see it when I do it that way. But I want to remind you, it's not just going this way. It's going this way. It is a downward spiral. Well, by way of application, before we go to our next point, who was doing the selling? Who was doing the giving of Israel into the hands of their oppressors in all of these passages? It's capital L-O-R-D. It's the God of the universe. It's the Lord from whom your sin is never hidden. You know what this is. This is God's judgment. This is God's great displeasure with all that dishonors Him. We define sin as not glorifying God. This is the only just consequences for that. God's judgment for the sin of His people. It's vitally important for us to understand what God's judgment is and how it unfolds in the lives of His people. We are not talking about condemnation. Unless, of course, many of these people were unregenerate, and I for one think that many, maybe most of them, were. I do not think most of the people that crossed the Red Sea and walked around in the wilderness for 40 years are in heaven right now because Hebrews 3 says they died in their unbelief. Some of them were Christians. Some of them trusted in the Savior to come, the Christ. 
And for those who are regenerate, there's a different way that God's judgment shows up than those who are unregenerate. Let's be clear. God has at least two types of judgment. One is remedial and one is final. Remedial judgment is where God lovingly, graciously makes you miserable in your sin so that you'll call out to Him for mercy. That's what the book of Judges is all about. Remedial judgment is a severe mercy. You've been listening to me for 28 minutes and 33 seconds. 28 minutes and 38 seconds. Did you hear some of the timestamps in those passages? 12 years, 18 years, 20 years. You think you're miserable listening to me now? Imagine being under the thumb of God for your rebellion and you know it! You know that's why you're there and He leaves you there for a couple of decades. A severe mercy is a great grace. So let me just bring it home to you where you live, in your lap. If you're living in sin and you don't have great assurance that you're saved, good! Good! I'm so glad! You should lack assurance that you're heaven bound if your life is drowning in that which will not be found in heaven. Remedial judgment is God's gracious intervention in the lives of His people, even a severe mercy, so that you'll be wooed back to Him. And He'll do whatever it takes to get your heart back to Him. If you have to be a prodigal living in a pig pen, eating muck and mire, living in the mud, whatever it takes for you to find out that your sin will never satisfy you, God will gladly do that. Final judgment is another thing. That's where God kills you. And, and let's not play games with God. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They didn't die that day. At least physically. They died in a far, far, far worse way. They died spiritually. But we see them still living and breathing and eating. And we think, oh, sin's not that serious. Not only will your sin find you out, if you don't graciously return to God, it will kill you. I did a count years ago of all the people in the Bible that God killed. Tried to do the math of the hundreds of thousands of people. Maybe you know some of their names. Nadab and Abihu. All the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Every solitary human minus eight of them in the days of Noah's flood. Flipping into the pages of the New Testament, Ananias, Sapphira, Herod, who in Acts 12.23 did not give glory to God and he died and was eaten by worms. 1 John 5.16, there is a sin leading to death. And I know we think we get away with it. And we here at Grace Church do not pretend to be sinless people. We pretend, we don't pretend. We are happy to be people that love each other enough to say, you keep living in your sin, it, it will kill you. Spiritually is already a fact. Physically too. I mean, you can just put your name in place of Ananias, Herod, 
Abihu, Sapphira, Nadab. Fill in the blank. Can a man hold fire in his bosom and not be burned? The question is not, are you a sinner? When I say there's a difference between God's judgment, remedial judgment, final judgment. Remedial judgment is a severe mercy where God's drawing you back to Himself. He's letting you taste what you think will satisfy you so you'll see that Christ is the fountain that your heart has longed for. That's a remedial judgment. Final judgments, God kills you. The question is not, are you a sinner? Sinners are in every camp. There are no other options. Everybody's a sinner. The question is, are you a repenting sinner? I'm not asking, did you repent? I'm asking, are you a repenting sinner? That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. If you can live in sin and not be miserable, you are not a Christian. Is that clear? If you can live in sin and not be miserable, you're not a Christian. Part of God's gracious work in the lives of His people is that when we plummet into sin, He always sends gracious conviction into our lives, oftentimes using His power of remedial judgment. That's what we've seen in our second point, divine judgment. So first, Plummeting into sin. Worshiping false gods. As Brian said last Sunday, it's a worship problem. They had the wrong God. God judged them. Allowing and causing them to be overcome by their enemies. Until eventually, number three, they cry to God for mercy. Let's do it again. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. First in Othniel's days, Judges chapter 3, verse 9. This is a Godward cry. Judges chapter 3, verse 9. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Skip down to verse 15. This is in the days of Ehud. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. If you go over to chapter 4, verse 3. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Skip to chapter 6. Look at verse 6. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. A little bit longer passage here over in chapter 10. Picking up in verse 10, we'll read down through verse 16. Judges chapter 10, verse 10. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. Yet, verse 13, you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. Verse 15. Sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. 
Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Do you see what God was doing? Remedial judgment, severe, severe mercy. A difficult providence. Graciously giving them no other option but God. What did the people say when God said, I'm not going to help you anymore. Go talk to all your little carved images. See if they'll help you. What did the people say? We have nowhere else to turn. You're all we have. When Jesus says in John chapter 6 to His 11 closest friends, are you going to leave too? When all the people walked away from Him because He had some difficult teaching, the disciples responded, to whom else would we go? We don't have any other options. You're our God. We don't have plan B. You're our only hope. That's the answer of a regenerate heart. Let me just ask you, if God gave you all health, all wealth, notoriety, fame, prestige, palaces, vacations, relationships, popularity, influence, and only withheld from you Christ, would you take that? What if He gave you misery and pain, sickness, death, suffering? What if you struggled every day, every moment to have the most basic needs of your life met, but He gave you Jesus? Would you take that option? A severe mercy tests the metal of the truly regenerate heart. And when God says to you, why don't you just go back to your other gods and see if they'll help you out? You know what a lost person says? Deal. You know what a Christian says? I'm the idiot that keeps hitting my head on the doorway. I'm not going back through it anymore. Give me Christ or else I die. Judges 13 Verse 9, in the days of Samson, God listened to the voice of Manoah. What did it take for Israel to cry out to the Lord? I skipped so many other verses that say the same thing. What did it take? You know what it's like when you listen to a sermon that you think is moderately helpful, which I seriously doubt this one meets that mark? And you just wish somebody else was there to hear it because, man, they really need it. What did it take for Israel to cry out to the Lord? That's the wrong question. At least it's the fruit, not the root. The question is, what does it take for you? When's the last time you got desperate for God? You felt like you had no other recourse. I mean, you're all doing pretty well. You got first world problems. Your problems are not problems. Most of the people in the world would gladly trade their problems for your problem. When your sin finds you in a serious predicament with God, 
when your soul finally feels arrested, the searching light of His holiness exposing you and all your filth, what does it take for you to cry out to God? I'm not talking about what we're doing right now. I'm not talking about this put-together, well-presented, you look great by the way. I'm talking about desperation, undone, people listening to Jonathan Edwards holding on to pillars in the church thinking they're about to slip into the pit of hell because they see their sin for what it is. What does it take for you to cry out to God? Have you ever prayed the prayer of Luke 16? Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says that man, not the guy with all the big flowery prayers, went to his house justified. What a word! Right with God, clean in his sight, reconciled. The imputed righteousness of Jesus credited to his bankrupt account. What does it take for you to cry out to God? There's a reason that religion gets a bad rap out in the world. There's also a reason the book of Judges is in the Bible. I think a lot of these people had what we cliche call foxhole religion, jailhouse conversion. You know why those are cliches. Because if you only need God when things are bad, you don't need God. Are you desperate? Lost people doubt the sincerity of the faith of people who cry to God only when they're in the jailhouse. Only when they're in the foxhole. They think those people are not real Christians. And they would say that they're not one either. Can those cries be sincere? Yes. Does God save people in foxholes? Yes. Does He save people in jailhouses? Yes. Does He save thieves on a cross? Yes. Rarely. The book of Judges shows us that no matter how far you've run, no matter how deep and dark your sin may be, as our good old dead friend Richard Sibbs said, there's more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. If you would cry out to Him for mercy right now, He'll hear your cry. And the book of Judges is a shocking expose at the inexhaustible mercy of Jesus. Let's face it. You'd give up on me if I did this to you. And I'd probably be tempted to give up on you too if you did this to me. But there's a God in heaven whose son you killed. And if you'll go to Him and ask Him to forgive you, He won't only do that. He'll do that. He'll invite you to live with Him forever. Is there a Father among us who would let that man move into His house? You don't know what the mercy of God is until you see sin for what it is. What makes you desperate? 
I'm talking about this kind of desperate. Deuteronomy 4.29 You will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart and all your soul. The cross of Jesus is the scandalous display of the heart of God. If you would turn from your sin now to Him who died for your crime against God, He'll forgive you. He'll restore you. The evidence that it is Jesus to whom you are turning is that the risen Jesus will be your life. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The love of Christ controls me. Concluding, one died for all, therefore all died. And those who live no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. To live is Christ, to die is gain, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death. Just Jesus, 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 Jesus is the evidence that it is Jesus to whom you've turned. So let's turn. The last point is divine deliverance. Sin, consequences, cry out, delivered. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Judges chapter 3, verse 9. Divine deliverance. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Verse 15. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, son of Gera, Benjamite, left-handed man. Verse 30, chapter 3. So Moab was subdued, subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for eight years. Chapter 4, verse 4. Deborah, prophetess, wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera in all the chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled on foot, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as some hard-to-pronounce place. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not even one was left. Verse 23, So God subdued on that day Jabin, king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. Chapter 6, verse 7 came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who brought you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery. And then what happens is Gideon blows 300 trumpets and God gives him a victory in chapter 8, verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you nor shall my son rule over you, but the Lord shall rule over you. You go over to chapter 10, uh, pardon me, chapter 11, toward the end, let your eyes fall on verse 29, eleven twenty-nine. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead, Manasseh, then he passed through Mitzpah and Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he went on, to the sons of Ammon, verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be 
Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave him into his hand, and you know the terrible story. That out of Jephthah's house, when he came back from victory, first person to breach the doorway was his daughter, and in agreement with his own foolish vow that God never sanctioned or endorsed, she eventually was sacrificed. So these judges are God's gracious divine deliverance when people cry out. They're at least a picture of that. And I say at least a picture because zero of them are heroes. Deborah would be maybe the most shining example but, but of each of these judges, you can find flaws. And sometimes very serious ones like Samson. We're not going to read it, but in chapter 16, verses 28 through 30, you find the end of Samson's life when he brings down the pillars and the house on him and all the Philistines, and he killed more on that day than he had killed his whole life cumulatively. And what we find in all these judges is, yes, God hears the prayer of His people who cry out in desperation for mercy. Yes, He sends a mediator, a deliverer, a judge. Yes, He does that. But what we see in all these judges is they're obviously not the ultimate answer. Instead of Jephthah, we don't need to make a sacrifice of our loved one to God for Him to like us more. We need the Gospel who gives us a Savior who gave Himself as a pledge to put us in His family. Or like Samson, Jesus died pulling the pillars on His own head and the weight of sin and judgment for our crimes against God so that we could live with Him forever. The pattern we've seen today, sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance exposes the cycle that goes from verse, uh, chapter 3 to chapter 16 of Judges. But I believe it also exposes our hearts. It's not only an expose on people who lived a long time ago. It is that, but it's an expose on your heart. My heart. And this pattern reminds us that the more we tolerate sin, the deeper our souls sink into its abyss. If we excuse sin because we indulge in it, just FYI, all, all the people who surprise, surprise, start changing their theology, just ask, so, so what's the thing you love now? What's the new idol? The more we tolerate and excuse sin, the more we indulge in it. The downward spiral of sin. What sins are you willing to tolerate? As Jerry Bridges, who's now with the Lord, asked, what, what are your respectable sins? What are the ones you're okay with? A sin you're willing to embrace? An initial temptation that you would give a little bit of leverage to and just dip your toe into the waters of this or that sin? The book of Judges is an apologetic argument from God on why that's not good. In fact, it's deadly. And as the book says at the end four times, 
You being your own king, jurisdiction, determining what's right, what's wrong, you in your own eyes getting to do it your way, is one of the greatest judgments God could ever give you. The final section of Judges, which we'll deal with, Lord willing, in the final two sermons after today, repeats that most famous line. It's actually the last sentence of the whole book for a reason. In those days, there was no king in Israel. No more deliverers. No more mediators. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Many generations in this world have attempted this sad experiment of living independently of allegiance to and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many have tried that experiment. We've been trying it since Genesis chapter 3. And the common denominator of all the people who go into that science laboratory and try that experiment get the same result. Sin, misery, emptiness, death. The book of Judges gives us two choices. Christ or chaos. So, next Sunday, same time, same place, we can continue banging our head on the same doorway of sin. And we can continue suffering its miserable consequences. Or, we can live our lives beneath the shadow of the sweet Lordship of Jesus the Christ. When we say that Judges is about Christ or chaos, we're also saying that God wants us to know what our lives are going to be defined by as well. He wants us to know which path we're on. There are no other options. So our forefathers kept hitting the doorway. And we look at them and say, how could you be so dumb? And we look at our own heart and we see the same bruises on our same spiritual forehead. Do you want to be, this is God's sentence, redeemed from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers? Do you want not to go down that path? Here's God's sentence. Plunge your soul into precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. There, Not sin, misery, emptiness, and death. Peace, rest, joy, purpose, satisfaction in Christ.